Now we're going to have our divine message, and I'd like to introduce Pastor Martin. He, uh, you're a youth and head of the youth department with the Ohio Conference. He was a pastor here in seven years. He's a very good speaker, and we love him very much, and we're glad to have you back. Right now. Thank you so much, Ron. Good morning. Happy Sabbath. Good morning, Happy what a privilege to worship with you and to see this place so full. I, I, I think we need to do something about the parkling out and the church. This is amazing. I'm, in a sense, also intimidated to see so many people. Definitely need the Holy Spirit today to share with us. You know, we're here to celebrate, are we not? And one of the things of being a Christian is to celebrate. To celebrate in a world that seems to be in flux, in confusion, in despair, in need, we can still celebrate because Jesus gave us promises. Isn't that right? One time I was just a young man of about maybe 16 or 17, and once in a while my church would ask me to give small um, sermonettes in in the youth program in the afternoon. And I'd always share something positive, something uplifting, something encouraging, because I believe that the Bible does two things. Number one, it challenges you, it encourages you. And, and a dear old saint, meaning well, came to me and said, Why is it that you're always so joyful and uplifting in your sermon? Doesn't the Bible say we ought to weep between the porch and the altar? And you know, there are times when I do in my closet weep over my sins. It's appropriate to do so. But I also believe that, that Paul in Philippians has it right when he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. And just in case you missed the word always, he says, and again I say, now you know what, when I'm having a horrible bad day, I don't want anyone telling me to rejoice. Unless you know that that person practices what they preach. And Paul was one of those individuals. Paul knew how to rejoice always. You know, when he wrote that to the Philippians, it was in Philippi that he practiced rejoicing always. You know, he healed a girl, a servant girl, that got him in a lot of trouble, and they beat him with many rods, and they stuck him into a jail, and there at midnight, he looks over to Silas, and he says, Hey, Si. You know, they were buddies, so probably they had nicknames for each other. And he said, Hey, Si. Yes. He says, We're not dead. And Si says, I know. If we're not dead, we're not done. And guess what, Sai? What? Jesus is on his throne. He deserves some worship. And so they start singing hymns. He rejoiced in the Lord after being beaten and jailed. And that's what it means to be a Christian, friend. Is to rejoice not in the circumstances, to rejoice not in the struggle, but to rejoice in the Lord. Because you may be going through something now and you're tempted to fixate on your trials. But what the Lord calls us to do is to turn to the Lord. You look to your trials, you look to the Lord. You look to your trials, you look to the Lord. And then you tell the Lord about your trials. Right? Isn't that what he says in Philippians 4, 6? It's like, don't be anxious about anything, but bring your supplication, and mingle it with what? Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. 
And so as you start telling the Lord about your troubles, you can't help but to realize he's on his throne. And you start mingling it. Why do I say that? Because today we're celebrating. We are the church militant. We are in a world full of suffering and pain. And yet we rejoice because Jesus is on his throne. And he has the power to save. And we're celebrating that salvation today, are we not? So we'll do that through a psalm, Psalm 24. And I invite you to actually go to the context of it, 2 Samuel 6. And would you mind if I just have a word of prayer before we begin God's word? Would that be all right? Just as you are seated, if you wouldn't mind just closing your eyes, bowing your heads, let us pray. Gracious Father, we're just thankful this morning for Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And that today we celebrate the fact that he saves. I think of the reality that there's joy in heaven when a sinner repents. Oh, there's joy in heaven today because two are being baptized. And I just ask, Lord, that that the Holy Spirit may come near. And in spite of my weaknesses and in spite of my frailty, Lord, I pray that Jesus may be uplifted, that the curtain may be drawn aside, that we may see him seated on his throne, high and lifted up. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, draw us to Jesus, I ask. That we may be more in love with Jesus. More on fire for him. More faithful and dedicated. And we also ask that may the Holy Spirit not only uplift Jesus to us, but empower us to live for Jesus. We can't do it in our own strength. Give us wisdom and strength to be faithful. For greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. And in Jesus' precious name I pray. Amen. Amen. A few years ago, I was in Israel. And right on Friday, we went to Jerusalem. And we checked into our hotel. And we had in the lobby our uh, evening meal, uh, uh, meal in Jerusalem, right at the hotel, in the lobby. And of course, it was the beginning of the Sabbath, and and you have many faithful Jews living in Jerusalem. And what I witnessed that night is that those faithful Jews know how to celebrate. There was a family that came in, a family of aunts and uncles, grandparents, children, and uh, 30 or 40 of them. And we were sitting us together, and they were off a little ways with their own family, and they were celebrating. Guess what event they were celebrating? The beginning of the Sabbath. You know, every Friday night, it's a celebration that God is the creator God. And it dawned on me, I don't know how to celebrate the reality that God is my creator Jesus is my Savior. And that's what the psalm is about that we're going to look at. We're going to look at Psalm 24. 
It is one of the most amazing psalms written for a specific event, a celebration. And I would say for the Jews, it was probably one of the most important events. The context of it is in 2 Samuel 6. 2 Samuel 6. You see there, this is the time when King David has been blessed by the Lord. And now he wants to bring the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. Now that is a huge undertaking because God's promise to Israel was to give them the land of Canaan. And what could be a more befitting way of having the land of Canaan as a possession than to have the Ark of the Covenant finally resting in its place? So you can see the significance of this idea of David let me bring the ark home we're home and so now he wants to do that and the story begins with this idea of David and all his house like verse 5 says David and all the house of Israel played music before the Lord on all kinds of instruments of firwood and harps and string instruments and tambourines and sistrums and cymbals and and so on you can imagine it was a great celebration God has fulfilled his promise He has given us the promised land. And then they are not following God's way of carrying out, of carrying the Ark of the Covenant. So you know what happens next in verse 7, when the anger of the Lord was aroused aroused against Uzzah because he reached out and steadied the Ark. So now everybody is sad and they take the Ark to Obed-Edom's house. They leave it there. And God blesses this man, Obed, because of that. And the news goes to David. The Lord really blessed his home. You know, God blesses those who walk with him. God blesses those who invite his presence. And not necessarily does he bless you financially. He blesses you numerous ways. Only in the kingdom will you know all the blessings you've received in life because of walking with Jesus. And so he hears that news, and David says, no, we need to bring it back. So he does this where he, I I believe in my mind, I picture him coming together with all his leaders and said, we messed up. We didn't follow how God, how does God want us to carry? And so they tell him, back in, in, in the Pentateuch, it's told how we ought to do this. We are not to put it on a card. We are to care. The Levites are to carry it, right? And so they go through all that, and David puts together everything for this day of celebration. He gets the musicians. He gets the food together. He gets the decorations together. He plans it all out. We're bringing the ark of God to Jerusalem. So he writes Psalm 24. As part of the procession. And Psalm 24 is the most amazing psalm of praise to God. And so if you go to Psalm 24, the way David had this song, and, and you all have a choir, so you, you have musicians here, you, you know what I'm talking about. David is thinking of, se- of separating his choir in a, at least two groups. Maybe he did more, but... At least two groups, he has his choir separated. And he has the right timing of, it tells us there in Second Samuel, he does a certain amount of, of, of steps. 
and he sacrifices, and he does a certain amount of steps, and he has it all choreographed just right. And when they get close to the gate, now he knows they're going to sing Psalm 24. And you have one part of the choir with the procession coming towards Jerusalem, and you have another part of the choir anticipating the arrival of the ark. And when the timing is right, they sing this song. And I kind of imagine verse 1 and 2 being sang together by both choirs. Let's quickly go through the psalm and then we'll unpack it. Verse 1 and 2. The earth is the Lord's and all its fullness, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. So both choirs sing those words. And then one of the choirs, one of the choirs from one side sings the next verse and says, Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? Or who may stand in his holy place? And then the other choir responds and sings back, He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to an idol, nor sworn deceitfully, he shall receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is Jacob, the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face. And then the choir, from the procession, they sing the following words. Lift up your your heads, O you gates, and be lifted up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. And then the choir from the gate that is standing here sings back, Who is this King of glory? And then this choir from here responds, The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O you gates, Lift up your everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. And again, the choir that is anticipating for them to come sings back, Who is this King of glory? And the response comes from the procession. The Lord of hosts, He is the King of glory. I tell you, it must have been an amazing celebration to welcome the Ark of the Covenant. And David probably spent much time meditating and thinking about this song to make sure that as he writes it down, it's not only beautiful for the ear, but meaningful for the soul. Because it was a celebration of worship And right away in the first two verses, he wants to nail down, why are we worshiping today? What is the purpose of worship? Friend, you are here today to worship. Why? What is the purpose of us coming together? He tells us the real purpose of what worship ought to be. Maybe you're here because your parents dragged you. Maybe you're here because your spouse dragged you. 
Maybe you're here because you love Jesus and you want to be here. Here in verse 1 and 2 is the real reason. The fundamental reason for worshiping God. Notice again verse 1 and 2. The earth is the Lord's and all its fullness. The world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. The real purpose of worship is because God is the creator. We recognize him as the one who created all things and owns all things. And you may say, duh, I know that. That's, there's nothing profound in that. But listen, friends, when we go to the book of Revelation and we unpack the whole reasoning of last day events and you look at Revelation 12, 13, and 14, you will come to understand that everyone in the end times will be worshiping. Everyone will be worshiping. But there will be a group who will be worshiping God as the creator God. And that is found in Revelation 14, verse 6, right? Worship him who made heaven and earth, the seas, and the fountains of waters. And so we need to come to grips with the reality that the number one reason we worship God is because he is the creator God. And this is something that the devil attacks. What do you think the theory of evolution is about? You have not been created. Or let's compromise theistic evolution. Oh yeah, there is a God that kind of started a big bang and then let it roll. It all dismisses the idea of God as the creator. But there will be a group of people who, like David in the end times, will recognize God as the creator God and will worship him on the day he has set aside as a day of worship. Not because they want to be saved, but because they are in a saving relationship with Jesus Christ and they choose to worship the creator God. And so the question comes from one of the choir members. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? You know that's a question in the sixth seal. When the seals are open and there's a huge earthquake and then you find the, the kings and the queens and the rich and the poor and the free and the slaves all saying, hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. I always chuckle at that. You know, I'm a city boy. I grew up in the city. I'm afraid of animals. If I would have grown up in a, 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 on a farm, I, I, I probably would be okay. But if I see a goat, he stays there, I stay here. But I'm not afraid of lambs, even as a city boy. I'll go up to a little lamb and pet it. But the rich men and the mighty warriors are afraid of the wrath of the lamb. And they ask a question. You can read it there in Revelation chapter 6. Who 
is able to stand? And the answer is found in Revelation chapter 7. Those that are sealed. Why? They worship the Creator. All right? Now, he answers the question here as well for us. The question is answered in verse 4. The promise is given in verse 5. A declaration is pronounced in verse 6. Here's the answer in verse 4. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to an idol nor sworn deceitfully. One of the things the Lord cannot stand is external form followed up with genuine motive. It's something in Isaiah 1 he talks about, is it not? I am sick and tired of your sacrifices. You come here and you worship and you sing songs. And what do you do? You go back home and you take advantage of the poor and the needy. And you do all these despicable things. And then you come again all dressed up nice, your tie's nice, and you sing again. I'm sick and tired of it. What I long for is clean hands. And pure hearts. God wants the heart. He wants authenticity. He wants transparency. He wants you to be genuine and real with him. He sees through just like kids see through. Kids are great judges of character. That's why they love to come to Jesus. Because they saw him as one that was approachable and loving. God knows who can stand in his holy. He who gives him his heart and allows the Holy Spirit to transform him. There's a promise for that person. Notice, Notice, he shall receive blessing from the Lord. That's why we celebrate, because of the blessings of God. And then, of course, the pronouncement. This is Jacob, the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face. Now, I think the psalm has been amazing this far, but I think verses 7 through 10 is the most amazing part of this psalm. As they come near, and to have one group asking for the gates to lift it up, that the king of glory may come in. Why? Because the Lord is strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. You know, while this was a historical fact and an event that took place with the ark coming in the Old Testament with David bringing it into Jerusalem, this also had a significance in the New Testament. Because Monday, Jesus comes to the temple, uh, actually Sunday comes in, and then that last week he spends time in Jerusalem. And then Thursday night he goes to the upper room. And he institutes the communion service. And he tells the disciples, this is, my bread, uh, this is my body which is broken for you. And takes the grape juice and says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Right? And, 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 and then as he institutes it, he tells him, I go to prepare a place for you. Goes out to the garden of Gethsemane. Pours out his heart to God. Father, if it's possible, pass this cup from me. And then the next day, he goes to the cross 
for our salvation and dies the death that we deserve. Sunday morning, the good news is that he raises from the grave. And as he rose from the grave and Mary meets him, he spends time with the disciples on the road to Emmaus, 40 days. You go to the book of Desire of Ages and you read the last chapter, page 87. I highly recommend it that you do that today. If you don't have a copy, just go on here. You can get it. Desire of Ages, page 87. And if you don't have time to read the whole chapter today, skip to the end. Because there we find a wonderful scene of Revelation chapter 4 and 5. You know what happens in Revelation chapter 4 and 5? Revelation 4, John sees in vision of the throne room when Jesus arrives back from his resurrection. You know how it happens on earth. On earth, you have Jesus and the disciples, and as he's taken up, angels meet him part way. And together with the angels, they're coming to heaven. And I don't know what heaven looks like, but it's so much better than our wildest imaginations. But you know what I'm thinking? I'm thinking that as Jesus is traveling with those angels coming towards, he has just gained a victory over sin. You know, in Revelation chapter 5, in the beginning, John, sees this scroll on the right side of God the Father. And he is told no one is worthy to open the seals of the scroll. And we are told that he wept and wept and wept. Well, listen, friends. If there's a scroll that no one's willing to open, I may be sad. But I'm not going to cry about it. John understood that this scroll meant the salvation of humanity that it meant that in the great controversy, there's hope for us. And the reason he wept and wept and wept is he was doomed and all humanity was doomed. And if no one is worthy to open the seal, there's no hope for humanity. And so he weeps and weeps until he is told, do not weep, John. The lion of the tribe of Judah is worthy. And when he looks to see the lion, what does he see? He sees a lamb slain from the foundation of the world with seven horns, seven eyes, which are the seven spirits. And then it says there, they are sent to the earth. And so in Acts 2, as the Holy Spirit descends on earth, Jesus is coronated up in heaven. But notice, in my mind, I see Jesus and the angels approaching heaven. And the angels are singing a song of victory. And I believe what they're singing is, as they're coming close, they're singing, lift up your heads, O you gates, and be lifted up, you everlasting uh, doors, and the king of glory shall come in. Think about it. He has just defeated the devil. He has defeated sin. He has defeated death. He is coming home. He is strong and mighty, mighty in battle. And the angels who are here, they know who Jesus is. 
They know what he has done when they are asking, who is this king of glory? It's not because they need to be educated. It's because they love to hear praises to Jesus. And they want to hear again the name of Jesus and what he has accomplished. And so they pick it up again. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Lift up you everlasting doors, and the king of glory shall come in. And you know the angels? They said, oh, we want to hear it one more time. Who is this king of glory? You know who Jesus is? He's the Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. And I could just imagine as Jesus enters heaven after gaining the victory, do you think there was a celebration? There is hope for humanity now. Satan has been defeated. And as the angels begin to sing, I see Jesus wave them back. Come to the Father. He sees the scroll by the Father's side. And he has a question. Father, Has the sacrifice been sufficient to bring my loved ones home? I'm thinking of Joyce, of Doyle, of Ken, Ben, Bob. I'm thinking of my friends. This worship means nothing to me unless Father, my sacrifice has been sufficient. And I do see the Father not extend a hand of, hey, welcome home. I see him embrace his son and say, oh yes. Oh yes. You have defeated the enemy. We can welcome them home. And that's when Jesus takes the scroll and starts opening it seal by seal. You know, friends, while Jesus is in the most holy place for us today, we are told that our bodies is the temple of the Holy Spirit. He has entered the heavenly sanctuary for us, but he wants to enter one more holy place, one more sanctuary. He wants to enter our hearts. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. According to Revelation 3, verse 20, he knocks on the door of your heart. And you may ask, who is that is knocking? He is the Lord, mighty and strong, mighty in battle. If you let me in, I can give you victory over all that is besetting you. Any temptation that comes your way, I can give you victory. Any pain and suffering, I can help you. Anything that is helping or going on in your life, I can give you victory. He is strong. You know, too often, we look at our sins and our addictions, and we think they're mighty. It's because we have our eyes focused on them 
and not at the one who can give us the victory. Jesus is powerful, friends. But he's not going to break down the door of your heart. He's not going to force himself in. He's not going to form transformation on you. All too often we pray and we do nothing. We don't even open the door. We pray for help while putting more obstacles in front of the door. You know, there's a part for us to do. Let Jesus into your heart. It's not to clean yourself up. It's not to shave and say, oh, I'm going to deal with my problems and then open up. Oh, that's never going to happen. Let him in. And when you let Jesus into your heart, he will give you new desires. He will give you a new heart. He will give you a new focus. He will give you himself. What better gift and blessing to have? Just as Paul said, All the things of this world I consider rubbish if I could just win Christ. If I have Christ, I have everything. If I lose Christ, I lost it all. So today we're celebrating. It's not a day to weep between the porch and the altar. You can do that later in your closet. Today we're celebrating that Jesus is mighty and strong that he saves. And my prayer, friends, is that he comes into our hearts, transforms us. Oh, and I look forward to the day. What a day it will be when he shall come again. And we get to come before the gates of the new Jerusalem. Do you think that will be a great celebration? You know what my prayer is? My number one prayer is that I get to see Jesus put crowns upon my own children. That I get to see him put it on my wife, my friends. That's my prayer. I don't want riches. I don't want nothing from this world. I just want to come up to Jesus and have him say, Well done. Well done. Welcome home. And I don't know what I've done. I've done nothing. He's done it all. Why is he telling me well done? He did it all. All I did is open the door and let him in. Friends, let Jesus into your hearts. Let's pray. Gracious Father, Thank you for Jesus Christ. The reason we are here today is because Jesus is the Word. And the Word was with God and the Word was God and all things were made through Him. We first and foremost worship because He is our Creator. But we also celebrate today that He is a mighty Redeemer able to save us from sin. 
And we will witness that today. And so we thank you, Father, for Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And our desire today is may he enter our lives, come into our hearts, and dwell in us so that we may walk with him, talk with him, live like him. And in his precious name we pray. Amen.